Tonight, I want to continue with the theme that I spoke about uh, two weeks ago. And that is, how does the Rabbanu meet the challenge <clears throat> uh, in terms of getting all the Jews into Ilm Habo, especially when he laid down the condition that you have to be what's called Bizoicha, you have to merit through din, justice, the future world. So what happens if somebody doesn't merit it? Yeah, we know that the Mahanshim wants to get everybody in Toilem Habo, all the Jews, certainly. So how does he do it? So I started that last week, and I want to continue with that idea. And uh, I, I just want to let you know, you know, uh, <clears throat> that uh, there's certain very, I, I would even use the word shocking ideas that I'm going to talk about in this year. <clears throat> and certainly, um, uh, you probably never heard these ideas before, uh, because in many ways it is uh, shocking, as you will see, what the strategies are that the Bereshma has done uh, to make sure that the Jews on mass can get the future world. So sort of like I'm warning you beforehand that uh, part of this shear is going to be quite uh, remarkable and so on. Anyway, before I begin, let me just uh, dedicate this shear should be a blessing and a merit for the health and success of the families of Reuven Bas Yosef Reuven and Yeshaya Ben Yisrael Benjamin Wolf Ben Tzvi Hirsch and Baruch Ben Benjamin Wolf that the shit should go uh, certainly for their success and their Hatzlacha. Okay. Now, <clears throat> in many ways, the ideal, the theme of the Shir is the concept of the darkness, the Choshech, before Mashiach. That's really what this shear is about, and so on, you know? Where I'm trying to analyze the logic, or what is the strategy of why do we find in so many different places, in Chazal, uh, in the Talmud, and the Medrash, and so on, and they all say almost uh, uniformly, you know, with one voice that before Mashiach comes, it's going to be very, very bad. Especially the Gemaras and Saita, there's a lot of Gemaras that talk about, you know, what will happen to tremendous chutzpah, you know, arrogance and so on. And so the question is why? What's the logic of that? So what I want to do is introduce the whole concept, or I should say a major idea of the concepts, what these things really are, that really they provide the Rebbe Hashem with a tremendous remedy of how we can get all the Jews in Toilem Habo, which in many ways is shocking. But listen, <clears throat> look, remember, I don't report the news. You know, I, I, I should say, I, it's not that, you know, I don't make up the news. I just tell you what is obvious to all of us. But what I do try to do is give a rationale of how it fits into a divine plan. So it, at least it makes sense to us uh, for, for some type of beneficial position. So we shouldn't think that well, what's going on here? Like, you know, where is God? 
and so on. There's an expression called less din less dayan. There's no din, there's no judgment, and there's no judge. And people walk around today and say there is nothing like that anymore. God is absent, and he's certainly not judging anybody. So they think that the universe in many ways is hefker. Hefker means chaos. But what I want to try to demonstrate is that that is completely wrong. That everything that is happening today, as irrational as it looks, has a reason. Uh, you see, because one of the biggest questions that we have, and this is a tremendous, uh, uh, I should say, uh, question against imuna and bitochen, the belief in God and trust of God, that God seems to be aiding and abetting evil. Because we know that nothing can succeed unless God allows it to succeed. Nothing has the power even by itself to do anything. <clears throat> As they say, in there's no other force in the entire creation uh, that can move anything one nanometer let alone an entire happenings of the world. Uh, so the question then is, <clears throat> why is God doing that? So therefore it's really very important uh, from a, an Emunah and Bitochen standpoint, from a belief standpoint and a trust standpoint, to try to interpret this based on, you know, the divine agenda. Now, <clears throat> the, what the real answer is to this, obviously only God knows. Because God is what's called multi-dimensional. Multi God doesn't do one thing for one reason. He could do one thing for a million reasons, all coming to gel at the same time. Uh, so obviously, uh, most of this stuff is beyond our comprehension. But at least from a human standpoint, and this, the Ramchal says that, that it is a mitzvah to try to explain the acts of God. <clears throat> Because you don't want to walk away saying this whole thing is irrational. So either God has abandoned the, the, the world, He has abandoned the Jews, uh, you know, He doesn't know what He's doing anymore, whatever those things. Uh, of course, that's all apicosis, right? <clears throat> so the Ramchal says it's a mitzvah to justify what God does based on a rational plan, you see? So this is basically what I'm trying to do, <clears throat> and so on. Now, what is interesting is some of the answers or the interpretations are shocking. And they really are. But obviously, if God seems to be aiding and abetting evil or darkness, all right, to dominate the world, well, that itself is shocking. So the interpretation is not going to be less shocking than the whole problem, you see. <clears throat> You'll see what I mean when I get there. That I will be speaking on things that you could, it's hard to believe that these are the justifiable interpretations of what is going on. Now, the concept that there is darkness before the Messianic, or before the Messianic era, is in many, many places. I'll just mention a couple. You know, in, in the Sefer Dvorim, toward the end, the famous, is, well, famous one is where God says to Moshe Rabbeinu that the Jews will rebel against me. After you're dead, when you die, the Jews are going to rebel. And God says this openly to Moshe. This is a nevuah. 
this is a prophecy and so on, you know. Um, and he uses an expression, and we are I hastir astir ponai by Yomahu, and I will surely hide my face on that day. <coughs> well, that's called hest upon him, where God conceals his presence. And guess what happens when God conceals his presence? There's an automatically proliferation of evil, bad, <coughs> things which are really negative. That's what happens. So it looks like, in a certain sense, God forbid, that God has concealed himself, that God has abandoned the universe. And it looks like that God has abandoned the Jewish people, you see. And God says himself, I will conceal my face, which means I, I will not look at their cries, right? And all kinds of terrible negative things are going to ensue. But we know that what it really means is that the Hester itself is a strategy. That's the important idea, that when God says, I will surely conceal my face from them, that is the strategy that will really save them. That's the way a believing Jew has to understand what God is saying. So that's the first concept, is that it says clearly that God will abandon, right? He will conceal his face, which seems to be a statement of abandonment, right? At the end of days, at the end of days. There you are, that's the darkness. Uh, then there's an interesting Navi, you know, <clears throat> where it says, behold, days are coming, you know, that there will be a hunger in the land. And it's not, it's a famous Pasuk, and it won't be a hunger for bread or a thirst for water, but to know the word of God. You see, to know the word of God. Well, <clears throat> what does that mean? Hunger, what is hunger? That means darkness. There will be a time, an atmosphere in the world. Days are coming at the end of time when it would seem like God has walked away from everything, you see. But, so that's the chayshech, that's the darkness. But what's interesting is what comes after, is that will be precipitate a tremendous hunger to know God. Now we don't know exactly how that, that's going to happen, but this is the posik that that's going to generate a tremendous hunger to know the will of God. In other words, there will be a tremendous uh, 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 rise in the desire of consciousness of God, and so on. Anyway, so there you are. That's again the whole concept. <clears throat> then, you don't even have to, so that's basically in the Navi, and so on, but you really could look at the first or second, actually the second Pasuk in Bracious. Where it says, God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then what happened? And the earth was unformed, unformed and empty void, right? And darkness was on the face of the deep. That's darkness. You see? So darkness was enveloped the entire creation, right? <clears throat> And it was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God, floats in the midst of the waters, 
or I should say in the midst of the darkness, right, on the waters. Ruach HaLakim Rachefes, and the Spirit of God floats or hovers, right, on top of the waters and so on, and obviously in the midst of the darkness, right? And then it says, Vayyom and God said, Yihiyor, let there be light. There you are. Now, the Balaturim says, very interestingly, that the gematria, which is the numerical value of this phrase, Veruach Elokim Rachefes, and the Spirit of God will hover, where? Obviously over the waters, in the midst of the darkness, because then God says, let there be light. So obviously what preceded it was darkness. So the Balaturim wrote a tremendous commentary, uh, and so on, you know, and he says that the gematria, the numerical value of that phrase, is gematria, this statement. Zuhi, this is, what is hovering in the darkness over the waters? The spirit of the Messiah. That's what he says. So, Ruach Elohim doesn't refer to God, it refers to a being that has that type of connection to God. So the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God, hovers, really is the Mashiach. But wait a minute. It says that if it is Mashiach, which he said it is, that's the Gematria, right? It hovers in the midst of the darkness over the waters. But that's darkness. There you are. Again, and it's right before he comes because it says, came and God said, Yehiyah, let there be light. You see. So clearly then, right before this light, which obviously is the redemption, right? <clears throat> it says that there will be darkness, right? And that the, the Mashiach, his soul or his spirit, hovers in the midst of that darkness. So again, there you are. That clearly says, and this is in the second posse of Bratius, that what will happen? There will be darkness right before the messianic entrance. So there you are. So that, that's a third idea, and so on. <clears throat> then I want to quote the, there's many more, but I just want to quote the last one, which is really very good, it's very powerful. The Ramchal, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Rutsato, wrote many, many swarm. It was an incredible Kabbalist uh, Hashkofa and so on, you know. But he wrote a sefer, okay, called Maimah HaGeula, which is an essay on the redemption. <clears throat> and in that sefer, he writes something which is fascinating. Uh, he says that in order for the world to survive, there are like, it's like you're in a house. In order for you to see light coming from the outside, the windows have to be open. Open means not, uh, you know, not uh, covered, whatever, you see. And then the divine energy comes through the window into the house, which is the creation, you see. <clears throat> so like windows. But he says that as time goes on, okay, those windows basically, let's assume that they are covered in their black paint, they're all black. <clears throat> So obviously then the windows have to be open. So he says, as time goes on, those windows begin to descend, descend, and so on, until right before the Mashiach comes, those windows are maybe a nanometer from the sill, from the windowsill. 
And if the window ever closed, then the entire creation would instantly obliterate. Because it needs that divine energy. This is what the Ramchal says. Let me see. So it's an incredible metaphor. What will happen right before Mashiach? So he says that the window, he uses the expression, will close ad until the sill, but the ad means the sill is not included, which means it won't shut. Because the instant it shuts, that is the end of the entire creation. I'm not talking about the universe which is 13.7 billion light years. I'm talking about the creation, which is almost infinitely larger. We're talking about angels and so on, you know, with all the inhabitants of the creation, you see. So that's what he says. So that's the metaphor of windows, he says, you know. And then when it's, and what he does say is interesting. He says that at the last instant, before it's about to shut, the door, let's call it the door, opens and then the window shut. If that door had not opened and the window shut, creation disappears. But what the Bansham does is he brings down the darkness or the absence of the power of God, the divine flow of energy. He diminishes it to such an extent where it's the last possible moment and if it closed everything would disappear so right before that moment when it does close the door opens and in comes the light and that is the messianic era uh, so what does that mean that means before that door opens that window is the only thing available to allow the energy the divine energy to come in but wait a minute if it's down to the nanometer that's darkness. That means what the Ramchal is saying is that we cannot even imagine the absence of God, hester upon him, right? The concealment of God's face and so on. We cannot even imagine the absence of God, what it will be like at the end of time, which is the reversal of that, is that there will be an unbelievable predominance and intensity of evil. That's what it means. So there you are. Uh, that metaphor is almost a frightening understanding and so on. <clears throat> now, we have to ask ourselves, so I've demonstrated different places, Chazal, what will be right before Mashiach comes. Now, <clears throat> obviously, we all are now in a very bad time. The, the amount of evil that, you know, that uh, uh, pervades the world is beyond belief. I mean, people walk around, they can't believe what's happening. You know, it's like the world, world has become, it's a famous novel, Alice in Wonderland, where the whole thing is irrational. <clears throat> the world has become an Alice in Wonderland, uh, you know, uh, residence. Nothing is normal. People look at the Democratic Party, they look at Biden, the progressives, you see, they look at the transgender revolution, what's happening in the education, the cops. I mean, we just read a bunch of migrants beat up a bunch of, you know, some cops, right? And they just took off and they didn't even give them bail. I mean, the whole thing is irrational. Everything. 
the inflation and so on without going to all the you know the uh, the uh, disasters of this world uh, clearly we are reaching or we are that at that point and one of the greatest demonstrations of what evil there lurks in this world is what Hamas did on October 7th like I once said in the shade before this you know uh, what they did right it's 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 not even an animal it's not only that it's subhuman even animals don't do and they're clearly not you know, humans what they did you know people have never seen that type of brutality and savagery among humans you know <clears throat> and so on even the Nazis the Mahshimam didn't do that yeah they took you gas you and then put your body in the oven but they didn't mutilate you before you see before you were you know and so on what they did to all the women and the men and so on and they took babies and put them in ovens burnt them to death I, I, well you know just without going into that <clears throat> that kind of savagery uh, has really been seen in the human race that type of wanton savagery anyway <clears throat> so clearly the world has reached an unbelievable place and so on you know so what we have to ask ourselves is wait a minute none of this can happen unless God assists these people in doing it he has to allow them to do this because everything needs his input so how do we understand this from a divine perspective that is the question I want to deal with you know and so on so the first thing is that you should know that when people choose to do evil then the Sutton the angel of justice so that's basically really what it is he demands that there should be consequences for the evil that people do what are the consequences that evil has a right to dominate hey you want to do evil fine so let, let, let evil dominate let evil rule what people want you see so he says to God why are you stopping this you're preventing evil from what from dominating it's not fair to evil it's not fair to justice because the consequence of justice right is justice it's basically what it is you see so therefore what is important you see is that God accedes to the request or the demand or the complaint the claim of the, the Satan and therefore what happens evil dominates tremendously you see <clears throat> now what is therefore we can ask okay what's the logic of this you see and what's interesting is very very I had mentioned in the last year <clears throat> that <clears throat> One of the things that God employs to save the Jews for Ilam Habo is what's called the insanity plea. Actually, I said it was the ignorance plea. That God has to take away the ability of Jews to know the truth. So therefore, God could say in the court of law, well, they don't know. So they're not culpable. You see, in this case, think about that. What does God gain if evil predominates? And the answer is, no good. They're not tzaddikim. 
You see? There's no righteousness. The world is tremendously saturated with evil. But if that's the case, then what do you want from the Jewish people? You know, one of the important things is that you can say to a person, you know, well, why did you do this? You see, this was wrong. So the guy would say to you, what do you mean it's wrong? I don't see a model. I don't see anybody being righteous. So what do you want from me? I don't see anybody demonstrating holiness and righteousness. You see, <clears throat> so even though it's ironic that when evil dominates totally, that, be, that provides actually a logic why the Jews are not culpable. Because then the Jews say, what do you want? We are honest. Honest means we are compelled. You see, we don't know what's right and wrong because we don't see anybody that's demonstrating righteousness or holiness. So what do you want from us? It's not fair. You put us down in a, in a world that is in the 49th level of Tumor, right? And then you're wondering why we act that way. We don't know any different. We are anusim. We are compelled to why, why are we guilty? So we understand it's a twisted logic here, but it's interesting that it's true. In fact, the Gemara has this kind of statement. It says, imagine you take, I want to illustrate this, Mayasa ben Vuloyechte. What does the Gemara say? You take a guy, you put him on fancy clothing, you give him a whole wad of money, and then you take him, right, and you put him next to a house of ill repute, prostitution. Now, do you expect this guy not to go in? He's got everything he needs to go in and sin. The Gemara says that. So what do you want from the guy? That's the Mayasa Ben Vloyechta, right? What can the child do or the person do and avoid sin? Not much. In other words, if you load up a guy with all the preps that he needs to sin, not only that, but you take away the models of righteousness and holiness, what do you want from this guy? That's not fair. You see? Because justice demands some type of fairness. He's got to see good stuff besides evil stuff in order to have a choice. You basically destroyed his choice. And that's the logic, one of the logics, which is fascinating, you see, <clears throat> of why God allows evil in the end. Because in the end of time, the world will have achieved, and that's really what it means that the window is about to close. The world is at the Memteshari Tumor. The world is at the level of incredible amount of tumor, defilement, pollution, evil, you see, at the 49th level, and there are only 50, all right? So then the question is, a guy can say, so what do you want from me? If I'm brought up into a world where I see no real good, I don't see models of behavior, I don't see tzaddikim, you know? It used to be in the times of the Tanoim, the Amoroim, those people that were in the Talmudic times. You know, if you lived in a, uh, a city, there used to be all hundreds of Sadiqim that you could see them. So could you imagine the, the lift it would give you? The encouragement it would give you? Today, you're lucky if there's one Sadiq in the entire city. You know? <clears throat> so therefore, a guy can say, well, what do you want from me? You've taken away all the models that demonstrate what righteousness is. So what do you expect me to do? So 
it's amazing to think that when God says to the Sultan, okay, I will allow you the consequences of the evil that people do, you know, so the Sultan says, fabulous. Why? Because if now evil predominates, then they will get everybody, all the Jews to do evil, and then the Sultan, we know, takes from the Kedusha of the sins of the Jews that they would have gotten had they not sinned. So he takes it from himself, you see? But he doesn't realize that at the same time, this is providing what's called the insanity plea. What's an insanity plea? He's an honest. It's not his fault, you know? He became psychotic at that moment. There's no free will, you see? So he's not culpable, he's not guilty, you see? And that's really what the insanity plea is, that he's not culpable because he had no free will. Well, guess what? If there are no tzaddikim at all, or hardly any, uh, you see, and you don't see righteousness, holiness, you don't see people that are good and so on, it's so hard to find, because everybody basically is corrupt, you see. Then that provides, I'm compelled, I'm an onus. That's an insanity plea. So that's what God does. So lo and behold, it's amazing that by giving in to the sudden, he fools the sudden by taking away the culpability of the Jewish people. You see? So that's a very, very important idea. So that's the first thing that we can see when evil dominates. You see? Which in many ways is, think about that, it's really incredible. Uh, then there's something else. We don't realize that every Jewish soul is a tremendous generator of Kedusha, of holiness. We don't realize that. Even when a Jew sins, he has a neshama which is much greater than, in that sense, the non-Jew because his neshama, his soul, reaches up into all the five areas or worlds in order to rectify them. Since he's connected to all of them, his acts will actually bring the presence of God to all the worlds. So a Jew, merely by his presence itself, will bring down a certain level of the divine presence. That's why, you know, in, we know that, for instance, to say Kaddish, an Omen, you need 10 Jews, and so on. Why? Because 10 Jews together, it's not just 10 Jews. It's 10 Jews as a unit that brings down a certain level of the presence of God, of the Shekhinah. And in order to say this particular prayer, you need this level of Shekhinah. You see, it's what the Jew possesses that enables him, you see, to do things that require a, a minion, a quorum of 10 Jews. Therefore, which is now, if that's the case, <clears throat> Well, if you want to increase the amount of evil, which is what I said, right, then there's two things you have to do. And I'm going to show you that. The first thing you have to do is allow evil to be successful, which is what God did. For instance, in the Holocaust, He allowed the Nazis, Shimon, right, to be successful, you see, for many years, in executing what they call the <coughs> final solution. He gave them success that only he could do because they fit his agenda, like I say. 
But there's something else. <clears throat> because if you want evil to succeed, and again, intensify the insanity plea, you need to remove the Jew. Because the Jew's mere presence stops or impedes the holiness found in a room. Right. Just like when 10 Jews get together and they can say a certain level, certain statements of holiness, <clears throat> right? Because that's the Jew itself, the presence of the Jew because of his neshama, his soul, when a group of them get together, there's actually a certain level of shechina, divine presence in that room. Right. That's the being of the Jew. <clears throat> so wait a minute. In order for evil to dominate, right, to be pervasive, then unfortunately, you got to get rid of the Jews. Because the presence of the Jew in and of itself impedes the flow of Tumor. We don't realize that. Now we begin to understand certain very important concepts in history. One of the main destructive acts of the Holocaust is that they killed six million Jews. <clears throat> why? Well, we know why they did it. I'm not going to go into Hitler, his insanity and so on. <clears throat> but what's interesting is that six million Jews are dead. That means the presence of six million Kedoshim, holy people, no matter what level of observance they were at, right? enormously diminishes the amount of divine presence in the world. That's what happens. We don't realize that. You see? So one of the reasons for the Holocaust in terms of allowing evil to dominate is to remove the Jews. Because their, their, their presence in and of itself will impede, you see, the flow of the divine presence. So once the decree was issued that God wants evil to dominate, for reasons that I said, uh, then one of the goals that he has to do, and that is the rationale of the decree, is I have to remove the presence of the Jew, because his presence brings me into the world. And my presence, the presence of God, the Shekhinah itself, stops the world from becoming the evil that God says it should become, in order to accomplish what he wants. Uh, it's, it's a different way of understanding. It's a spiritual idea. And part of the idea is that we don't realize the greatness of a Jewish soul and the fact that he's connected to all the divine, all the upper worlds, and the fact that the divine, uh, the divine presence itself exhibits itself or manifests itself through the soul, the neshama. Because that's what it means. When we say a Jewish soul is that he is part of God and whatever that means doesn't mean literally part but whatever the meaning is that means if you put 10 Jews in a room since each one is a part of God well guess what? That means God is in the room. Right? <clears throat> Could you imagine how much of God was in the world when 6 million Jews lived? That's a very important idea, you see. <clears throat> and now we understand also something, that this concept, you see, of diminishing the presence of the Jew has been going on for thousands of years. 
the Holocaust was an extreme example of this. Six million Jews in what? In uh, five, six years. You know, it's incredible and so on, you know. Uh, but let me tell you a statistic that I believe most people are not familiar with. Historians estimate, I've said this in the past, long time ago, historians estimate that at the time of the Romans, it was about 2,000 years ago, there was approximately 10 million Jews in the world, which is a lot of people, by the way. There were a lot of Jews in the world at the time of the Romans. Okay? <clears throat> now, historians estimate also, however they do, that there was about 25 million Chinese in the world at that time. So you have 10 million Jews, 25 million Chinese. Well, let's take a look. Today's time, how many Chinese are there? 1.4 billion Chinese, right? How many Jews are there? 15 million Jews. Wait a minute, that doesn't add up, you see. If there's 25 million Chinese, right, and now there's 1.4 billion Chinese, right, that means they multiplied 25 times what they were 2,000 years ago. So therefore, if you multiply 25 times 25 million, you come up with about 1.4 billion. Okay, makes sense. Because that's, that's how, how much they you know, multiply. <clears throat> but wait a minute. If there were 10 million Jews at the time of the Romans, and you multiply that by 25 times, right? Same thing as the Chinese, right? Then there should be 560 million Jews. Just look at the math. Do the math. You see? <clears throat> but there's no 560 million Jews. That's absurd. The people estimate there's about 15 and a half, 15 million Jews in the world. But how's that possible? <clears throat> there should be at least 560 million Jews in the world based on population dynamics, you see. So, what happened? Well, we know what happened. This is the result of 2,000 years of anti-Semitism and persecutions, especially at the hands of the Christians, because they've been killing Jews, right, for 2,000 years. We know that, in terms of the pogroms, right? We'll talk about the expulsions. We'll talk about the... Uh, what we call the Spanish Inquisition, uh, we talk about the brutality of what's been going on, Chmelnik and so on, to the Jewish people for 2,000 years. So, of course, instead of being 560 million, right, there's only 15 million Jews. From that, we begin to see, we get a feel of the destruction of the Jewish people, you see. But what's been also happening, obviously, is if there would have been 560 million Jews, could you imagine the amount of divine presence that there would be in the world? Uh, so instead, there's only divine presence for 15 million Jews. So you see, you begin to see that this is a strategy uh, that God allows evil to, to multiply uh, in order that there should be less culpability because if I don't see righteousness, what do you want from me? And the way he does that is by allowing people to destroy Jews, which obviously they can only destroy Jews, kill Jews, right, with the concept of divine permission. Uh, so we now begin to understand that second historical fact, 
that the Jews have been severely diminished against all odds. And I'll tell you something interesting. What doesn't even make sense is that we should have more than 560 million because the Jews have been around since Abraham, Avram Avinu. And Avram Avinu was 4,000 years ago. So we got 2,000 years more than the Chinese. So we should have another 2,000 years, all right? Which is not 560 million, right? It's over. We should have as many Jews, right, as Chinese, based on that. So when you think about 15 million Jews after 4,000 years, it's ludicrous. But again, that's the concept. Because the presence of the Jew interrupts, you see, or fights off Tumor. You see. <clears throat> In any case, that's a, a second very important idea. Now there's a third very important idea, which I had mentioned. One of the ways that God allows Jews through justice to get the future world, which I've said, is that first of all, they are honest. Right? There's no model of righteousness. So what do you want from them? You know? Second thing is that if Jews disappear, they're diminished. So that removes the Kedusha, a great deal of the divine presence that would help Jews, right, grow in spirituality. But then there's a third idea. And this third idea in many ways is shocking, as we will see. There's a posuk, which I had mentioned previously. That the Torah will not be forgotten, right, from the mouth of his descendants. And Rashi says, what do you mean the Torah will not be forgotten from the Jewish people? So Rashi says, over there, it's in Devarim, Lamed Aleph, Berak Lamed Aleph, Posuk Aleph, when it says that, that the Torah will not, will not be forgotten, so Rashi says, the Gamri, it will not be completely forgotten. That's what it's coming to tell you. Not that it won't be forgotten. It won't be completely forgotten where nobody remembers anything about the Torah. But that's amazing. In order for that prophecy to be fulfilled, all you need is two Jews to remember their Torah, and then it's not forgotten. But that means 99.99% of the Jewish people don't know anything. So the Torah is actually giving us a prophecy that the Torah will be forgotten by 99.99% of the Jewish people. So the question again, right, is why? And we know the answer. Because if I don't know the Torah, then what do you want from me? I'm not culpable. You see, so that's a third strategy, like I said, the first was to increase evil. The second was to diminish the Jews. And the third is to remove the Torah itself. Uh, you see. And as a result of that, if the Jews don't know their Torah, so they don't really know what to do. You see. Or how to be righteous. And that explains the last 300 years of what the Jews have been going through. In fact, it really started with the beginning of the reform movement, Moses Mendelssohn and so on, in the beginning of the uh, 1710 or 20 or whatever, he started that, where, <clears throat> and I went into it last time, <clears throat> that started, 
In other words, we now see that there were many ideas that diminished the amount of Torah scholarship. What are they? The Reform Movement destroyed the Torah. The Conservative, the Reconstructionist Movement, right? And then you have what happens today, right? The Holocaust. One of the main ideas of the Holocaust, which I mentioned, right, is that not only did they destroy the amount of Jews, six million, but they destroyed the yeshivas. They destroyed so much of Torah, you see, the Rosh Hashivas. They destroyed the, the main citadels of Torah in Europe, you see. So why? Because that's Lysi Shachemizai. That's how God is going to achieve the ignorance of the Jewish people. Then you had communism, which forbade, right, any learning of Torah. Then you had the Haskalah. What is the Haskalah? The Haskalah, we know, is basically Zionism. Or it's the attempt, right, at Russians, at, at the Jews, to assimilate in order to try to stop the anti-Semitism, but to do away, basically, with the Torah. And then, of course, you had Zionism, which tries to replace the land of Israel with the Torah itself. And they say that, well, the Jews are unique because we are a nation like everybody else. We have the state of Israel. No longer are they interested in the Torah as that which connects us to God. And of course, in Zionism, you have the Ere of Rav, those Jews that really want to get rid of the, uh, the whole concept of Torah as the bond between the Jews and God. Then you, had, then you have what's today is the real enemy. You have an enormous amount of technological distractions. That's what's happening today. One of the greatest enemies of the Jews, in many ways, is the technological distractions. What do I mean by that? Well, we have the internet, right? We have all the incredible websites. You have YouTube, you know, uh, social media and so on, you see, you know. You have smartphones, you have movies, you have television, you see. All of these, these things are incredible amount of distractions. Now, as a result of all of this coming together, converging, today, what do we have? 90% of the Jewish people are basically gone, right? Out of the 15, there was a study done in London, and they estimated there's 15 million Jews, but they estimated that 13 million of them have nothing to do with Judaism. Either they are assimilated, or they're intermarried, or they're unaffiliated. 90%. 13 million Jews are gone. That's astounding. Because you put all this together, you see, that's what happens, and so on. So we now understand that this prophecy of as Rashi says, the Gamri, that the Torah will not be, uh, will not be forgotten completely, is, is fulfilled. We see that. Most Jews have no knowledge whatsoever of their Torah. So in that sense, God is using it as a strategy to remove the culpability of the Jewish people. That's why he's allowing this to happen. You see, that's the logic of all this. Now, I did not, there's something that I want to address, and which is in many ways, 
it's it's like I say, it, it, it it's shocking. What is that? <clears throat> because based on Chazal, there's a problem here. What's the problem? The creation happened because of the Torah. What does that mean? That means Torah must exist among mankind. Not only that, Torah has to be learned somewhere on the planet in order for this world to exist. If for whatever reason they were not learning Torah, 24 hours, whatever, then the world would cease. As we see that from the first Rashi in Bereshis, you know, where it says, Bereshis with Ereshis, you know, that if the Jews accept the Torah, fine. If they don't accept the Torah, then the whole world returns to, to, to uh, emptiness and void and so on, you see. Uh, so, Torah must exist <coughs> in order for the world to exist. <coughs> now, you may say to me, wait a minute, did Torah exist always? No. Martin Torah happened, right, 2,448 years after the, the creation of the world. But most people don't realize that's not true. Odomorishan had the Torah. How? Because Odomorishan, what is the Torah? The Torah is a device, you see, that brings in the Shekhinah, the holiness of God, you see. But it all depends how much concealment of God there is. In the time of Odomorishan, the presence of God was so enormous that the Torah consisted of only one mitzvah. That's all you needed. Don't eat from that tree. Because the amount of presence of God was incredible. So the Torah, which would try to restore that amount missing, all it had to have be is one mitzvah. They don't realize that. All the Mauritians had the Torah. And then it became seven. You see. And then because the darkness where the Shekhinah began to leave because of the sins of man, you needed more Torah. You need more mitzvahs. You see? So therefore, in a certain sense, Torah grew. You see? It's like if you need to, you know, dig a bigger hole, then you need to get a, uh, what do you call it, uh, a derrick or something like that. You know, a steam shovel to make a bigger hole. You know? Same idea. The greater the Hester, the greater the amount of divine concealment, the greater the amount of mitzvahs to undo that concealment. So don't make a mistake. Adam had the Torah, you see. But it was given to all mankind, which I spoke about extensively before, and so on. So, therefore, there's a monumental problem. What is the problem? Which I just said. If the Torah is going to be forgotten among the Jewish people, right? Basically forgotten. Okay, two Jews will still know their Torah, whatever, right? So then people are not learning Torah. If they're not learning Torah, there goes the world. So what's amazing is God has to create a scenario where there's learning going on, but there is no knowing. Because if you don't know, you're not culpable, even though you learned. Isn't that an interesting twist? Right? I'll tell you something interesting. Education basically has five goals. Basically. What are they? Right? What are they? One. The first goal is you have to learn. Learning itself. The second goal, it's not enough to learn. You've got to know what you learned, which requires uh, different skills, review, and so on. 
The third goal of education is not just to know, but you have to master that which you know. So that's knowing at a much higher level of, of uh, sophistication. That's that mastery. Where do we know this? Because in the Torah, where do we know there's a mitzvah to learn Torah? Because it says in Kriyashma, Vishinantam Levanecho, and you will teach them diligently to your, to your children. So the Torah says, what does it mean to teach them diligently? It should just say, and you shall teach them, Vinimaditem Levanecho. What is Vishinantam Levanecho? What does that mean? So the Gemara in Kedushin, Mesech the Kedushin says, that what God wants, and people don't realize that, what God wants is you learn, you have to know what you learned, and you have to master that which you know. So God wants the level of proficiency of Torah to be at the level of what? To be at the level of mastery. The Gemara says, that it should be sharp in your mouth. And Rashi says that if somebody asks you something, immediately you can spit it out. That's called mastery. That's what God wants. You need to not just learn Torah and to know Torah. You need to master the Torah. That's the third goal. The fourth goal is you have to retain that which you've mastered. Right? You have to remember it. And then the fifth goal is you have to apply it in real life. That's it. Five goals. To learn, to know, to master, to retain, and to apply. Now, the question is this. Wait a minute. If the main idea is that there has to be learning among the Jews, and the key to exonerate them, right, is that they don't know their Torah, even though they've learned it, then God has to create a system whereby they could learn and not know. You see? Because if they know, then there's, culp there's culpability. Isn't that an interesting problem? Right, because that's what That's exactly what it means. They can't know it. It will be forgotten. They won't, but they, they can learn it as long as they don't know it. Think about what that means. So God, therefore, has to create the social forces that will allow those Jews that do learn most Jews don't even learn. But for those that he needs, he has to have some learning going on or the world can't exist. He's got to make sure that they learn and not know. So then everybody is not culpable. Did God do that? And the answer is yes. And I'm going to tell you several things which are shocking. And the reason why this exists is because of this problem, the culpability problem. Okay, so what did God do? <coughs> you see, mm, okay, mm, now, mm, there's a concept called, in, it's in Pirkei Rebbe Nosson, Perik Yudches, 18th Perik, whatever, says the following, if they tell you this Chochmah Begoyim, that there is wisdom among the non-Jews, Tamin, believe it, the Goyim have wisdom, no question about that, you have to believe it. If they tell you this Torah Begoyim, Al-Tamin. Don't believe it. Okay, so there are many Pshatim, you know, interpretations. Well, what's the difference between Torah and Chochmah? There are many of them. One of them, I'll just tell you one of them. Because Chochmah Begoyim is intellectual knowledge. 
that they have. I mean, what's going on today in the world of in, the intellectual elite and so on, computers and medicine and all that, I don't have to go through the whole thing. It's beyond belief what's happening in the world of science and technology and so on. But Torah is not that. Torah is to take the knowledge that you have and to personify that in the human behavior. That's different. And that's really what Torah is. Torah is not merely the knowledge of the creation, God, and all the worlds, right, and the Jews and so on. But it's also about the mitzvahs, how to act, how to behave. You see, that Goyim don't have. And it's true. You go through all their public schools, as far as I know, there's nothing about character building. <laughs> nothing. And I'm talking about not to be arrogant, not to be immoral, right? Or not to be angry, not to be cruel. There's nothing. There's no such thing as character building in a, in a public school, right? You know, they, if they talk about it, it's like somebody wrote a, a little book about that. But basically, in Judaism, it's always taught character building. That's Torah. So that's what the, the Medrash says, Ovas Rav Nosm, which is very interesting. <clears throat> okay, so let me tell you that the Chochmah B'Goyim, because we admit that the Goyim have Chochmah. Okay, let me give you an interesting concept, which is true, you know. If a guy wants to be an engineer, how long does it take? I think five years, six years. But after that, he's an engineer. He's got to take a test, he get a degree, certified as an engineer, and guess what? He can go out and get a license <laughs> and build, be an engineer, right? And all it takes is, let's say, five years, six years, whatever. CPA, two years, approximately. Uh, a lawyer, three years, right? Uh, an MD, a doctor, let's say seven years. But it's a reasonable amount of time. Yet, for some reason, they seem to succeed in making professionals. And if you ever look at the textbooks of these, these disciplines, it's astounding. I mean, a medical text is like 12, 1300 pages for each course. So the question is, wait a minute, how do they do it? And why is it by us, if a guy wants to learn, right? So if you can become an engineer in five or six years, okay. But if you look at a yeshiva guy in five or six years, right? He doesn't remember anything. I mean, this is common. Everybody can ask themselves. You don't need proof from anybody. Just ask yourself, what do you remember from all the years you won a yeshiva? What are you prepared to take a test on? Do you have mastery of anything? I'm not saying, you know, they're all geniuses in college, not at all. Uh, but there's a certain what's called minimum proficiency. And if you don't have that, you can't get a job. So the question that we have to ask is, hey, this is Chochmah Begoyim. How do they do it? You see, that is the question. In other words, not only do they learn, they know the Goyim, or else they have to shut their doors, you see. Whereas in Yeshiva you find that they learn, which is great, a lot of learning going on, but how much knowing is there? I'm not even talking about mastery. And I'm not talking about, you know, uh, applying and retaining, you know, and so on. So, 
The question is, how do they make a professional in a relatively short amount of time? Whereas in terms of our system of education, a guy can be in yeshiva for 20 years and not be prepared to take any test because he doesn't remember basically a great deal. This has been the system for years. How do we understand that? Now, somebody may say to me, wait a minute, Rabbi. Uh, uh, there's a flaw in your argument. Because Torah is infinite, which is true. Whereas engineering is not infinite. So, okay. So obviously something which is infinite is going to take an infinite amount of time. So what do you expect? The guy's not going to know anything. What's he going to know after five years? You know, was engineering, whatever, right? It's not infinite. So obviously he can master the basic rules and principles of that in a relatively short amount of time. What's my answer to that? <coughs> that you're wrong. There are two types of infinity. There's what's called absolute infinity, and that's true. Torah is absolutely infinite, so that's true. But nobody learns Torah absolutely infinite. Of course not, right? <clears throat> what does that mean? That means, let me put it this way. You ever walk into a medical library? You know what, how many lifetimes it would take to go through all the books in that library? So medical knowledge is not infinite, but it's relatively infinite because it would take you more than one lifetime. And as far as I'm concerned, that's infinite, relatively speaking. So even if it's not absolutely infinite, but it's relatively infinite. So the question is, how can they make an MD in seven years? Even relative infinite infinity, how do they make an MD? The guy's got to learn how to practice or kill his clients, his patients and so on. So how does that happen? And the answer is, that's the question. That's why that's not true. Even though Torah is infinite, absolutely, right? But many of the chokmas in college are relatively infinite. There is so much information today, it's just unbelievable that specialists today, uh, there's a specialist in a specialty itself. That's how, how much information there is. No one man can know. I think the last time one man could know all human knowledge was in the 12th century. I once read that, it was interesting. Uh, you know, today, you know, you look if you know one little nanometer of information. You know how many tens of thousands of journal articles there are? You know, I think there's 80 million books in the Library of Congress, and they're all dedicated to knowledge. Uh, the proliferation of information is beyond the human mind, and it grows every single year, you know. There are thousands and thousands of journal articles that are published every year, and each one basically is saying something that's innovative or whatever. So that's not an argument. So the question is, wait a minute, what do they do that they can produce a professional? He doesn't have to be perfect, doesn't have to know everything, but he has to have a minimum so he can go practice. Uh, whereas if you look in the system of in Judaism, Torah and so on and so forth, after five, six, seven years, what does a guy know? I don't know anything. He certainly doesn't remember. I'm not even talking about 20 years. I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to that have been in for 20 years and what do they remember? They said themselves that they hardly remember anything. Yeah, they have fragments smattering a little here, a little here, and so on. Uh, but this is not a command or a mastery. 
of the Torah. So what is the problem? So the answer is, here's what's going on. And it fits into what I'm saying. There is a lot of learning going on. That is true. <clears throat> there's probably more learning going on now because there's so many yeshivas and so on, whatever, Pesiakos and so on, than there was in Europe, I would dare say that, and so on. But there may be a lot of learning going on. But the real question is, how much knowing is there, really? I'm not even talking about Vishinantim Levanecho, and you will teach them diligently. How much mastery is there? That's the real question, because that's what the Bansham wants. So the question is, what do they do? What are we doing that doesn't seem to have anywhere near the results? You see, <clears throat> you know what the answer is? Because there is a certain order of educating people. How does somebody acquire a Chochmah? I will tell you. There's a beginning, right? And in the beginning, you learn beginning material. And then you begin to grow incrementally. You become intermediate. The information becomes intermediate. And then advanced. You don't start off advanced. You see? There's a beginning, middle, and an end. And that's the sequence. Therefore, you know, <clears throat> as, we, as we will see, that's not what's really happening and so on, you see. So the question then, what exactly is really happening? Well, let me tell you something. Uh, this is one of the most difficult things. It's very hard to speak about this, actually. Because I don't want uh, to make statements about the, you know, the uh, hardships of yeshiva and so on and so forth. They have str enough struggle. <clears throat> but the educational system is clearly deficient. What I'm doing is tying the obvious deficiency in the educational system to the fact that it's part of the culpability plan that God has actually invented. I will explain why it's developed that way. That God has actually developed a plan where you can learn and not know. You see, this is the incredible thing. <clears throat> you see. So the way to acquire information or the way to acquire that is you have to begin from a beginning. And then you have to advance from that beginning into intermediate studies and then into advanced studies, you see. So what would that look like in Judaism? Well, in Judaism, right, what's the beginning? Well, I'll tell you what the beginning is. The beginning is language. Do they learn language in yeshiva? Of course not. So the question is, how can you learn a textbook written in a foreign language, Hebrew or Aramaic? And the Hebrew is not modern Hebrew. The Hebrew is medieval Hebrew, or Rishonim, or biblical Hebrew, or Mishnaic Hebrew. Nobody learns Hebrew anymore, which is astounding. And I don't know if you know it, just as an aside, how many words repeat themselves more than five times in the, in the Torah? And the answer is about 950. Right. That's all the entire vocabulary you have to master, and you'll know most of the words in the Torah. Is that what they do? Of course not. They learn Pasuk by Pasuk instead of learning the vocabulary of the entire Torah. Uh, but anyway, language, it's critical, not taught. Then you wonder why guys struggle with Hebrew for their entire life. How many guys can't even read the Gemara, you see, and so on. Second thing you learn, of course, is Tanakh. Okay, they do that. They learn Tanakh. I don't know, I don't know about Nach. Some places, yes but they certainly learn the Torah, and so on. 
So that's good. But then we come to what's called Torah Shabbat Peh. Uh, this is all language in Torah Shabbat uh, the written law. But wait a minute, the oral law, what do they do? So basically, they learn Mishnah, which is the oral law, for one year, and then they jump to Gemara. What's wrong with that? Because Gemara is an advanced text. What is Gemara? Basically, what Gemara is, okay, is a collection of sugyas. A sugya is what? Is the total treatment given over to the resolution of a problem. It takes an advanced halachic problem, right? And it subjects it to a debate to arrive at the solution to the problem. But that's advanced. The, the main idea of a Gemara is called problem solving. You see, we then, if that's the case, fine. But problem solving is advanced. It presupposes that you have a tremendous database, yediyos, of Torah. And then you can analyze the, for the, the problems. You don't learn problems at the beginning. You certainly don't learn to, to, uh, problem solving as a 10-year-old kid. Uh, but that's when they start. But Gemara is an advanced text. Anybody looking at the Gemara sees that immediately. You see. So therefore, how could you start off at 10 years old with Gemara? They don't know anything. You see, so what, what they should do, so then the question is, where is the database? Where is the information about the Torah Shabbat the oral law, and the answer is the Mishnah. They should learn Mishnahis. You see, that's what they should learn. And then if they went to the database of Mishnahis, which is the entire oral law, and then begin Gemara, it would be phenomenal. In fact, I'm not the one that says this. Chazal say this. I mean, the, the, first of all, the uh, immediate Chazal is in Pirkei Ovis, I think Perakei, Mishnah Chofal, if I think, and where it says, Ben Chomesh LeMikra, you have till five years old to learn Mikra, which is Tanakh, Ben Esel Mishnah, you start Mishnah at 10 years old, right? And Ben Chomesh Esrei LeGemara. Gemara starts at 15. Why? <coughs> this is not because just it's a segula, a bracha, no. This is the sequence of education. Because Gemara is advanced. So you need a, a great deal of data, of information, before you even start Gemara. But they don't have that. You see, <clears throat> I maintain, and I've said this to many people, at least what you could do is learn the Mishnais of the Masech that you're about to learn. Even if you want to learn Gemara, but how could you go into Gemara with knowing nothing, basically, about the information in the Gemara? Learn the Mishnais of that Masechta, right? Uh, master it, and then go back and learn the Gemara itself. That's the way education has to proceed. There has to be basic information, preparation, and then you get more advanced. You don't start with an advanced book, especially Gemara's debate. Do you have any idea how sophisticated you have to be in understanding a debate? Uh, understand how to argue? How to understand the debate and so on? So what we begin to understand, right, <clears throat> is that's what you have to do. So Pirkei says that. Five years old to start Tanakh, ten years old to start Mishnah, and then fifteen to start Gemara. And that's logical. They start from the beginning. Uh, you see. Not only that, you know, 
is a Gemara in Tainus that says, you know, you know, somebody who is a Talmud and is and is uh, and it's Kosher Kabazel. The learning is like learning iron. That's how difficult it is for him to understand what's going on. Why? Because his mission is not Sidura. Because he doesn't know the Mishnais. You're subjecting him to an entire debate of an advanced problem without knowing any ideas, without knowing any facts. And then there's a the famous Gemara. I don't know if it's famous, but Rabbi Yochanan, the great Rabbi Yochanan, he says this in, in uh, Sanhedrin, I think Daf Membeis Omer Aleph. It's in the middle of the page. <coughs> Listen to what he says. Here's what Rabbi Yochan, the great Rabbi Yochan, says. With who can you find an individual that can conduct the war of learning Torah? Who? What type of person does he have to be? So he says, and he brings a posik with somebody who has bundles of Mishnais. He says that. You gotta have bundles of Mishnais. He's the guy that can conduct the war, the struggle to learn the Torah. And Rashi brings down, right in that place, and he says, even if the guy has an incredible head, you're not going to know anything. Because if you don't have the ideas, how can the world can you even confront or follow the logic? You see, you have to look at that Gemara and see. So Chazal themselves said, what are you doing? You don't start Gemara at an early age. And even if you do, I want to tell you something. What's the killer? It's not just that Gemara learning at 10 years old is a killer without any preparation whatsoever. The killer is that there's nothing else going on. They should have a Seder, a session in what's called Yediyo Isatera, two hours a day. That's what they should have. Okay, you want to learn Gemara because you want to give the kids excitement, you know, and you feel that, oh, well, if there's a whole debate going on, so they're, they're, they're entranced. And they're excited because you have to use your head. Okay. Which I disagree with, but okay. But at least have a two-hour session of Yediyos. But they don't do that in Yeshiva. They don't learn a thing about the Yediyos, the facts itself. That's the killer. That people don't know anything. That's why. Mm. Do you know how difficult it is to remember a Gemara? Because 90% of the Gemara is not fact. It's debate. And nobody remembers the debate unless you review it 150 times. <coughs> That's why nobody remembers the Gemara. You see? Because nobody remembers the individual back and forth, Shakavataya debate. Why would they? You see? But they could remember facts. You see? <coughs> so what I'm saying is that that, the yeshiva system, pays a terrible price. Oh yeah, there's a, a lot of learning going on, that's true. But what the Ramoshim has done, which is incredible, is he has allowed them to deceive themselves. Where they can learn for years and not remember anything. You see, because they don't remember the shock of Ataya, they don't remember the give and take, the debate, right? Which is 90, 95% of the Gemara, right? Because they never learn Mishnais. And if they do learn Mishnais, they do it for one year. Why? Because they're not ready for Gemara at 10 years old. They're only nine. Is that, is, is that a reason why they learn Mishnah for one year? You see, <clears throat> let me tell you something, okay? <clears throat> and, and there's so much. And the one who says this, many Akhwainim scream, what are you doing? 
I'm not even going into learning Gemara with Pilpul, you know, with give and take, back and forth, uh, and so on. The Maharal from Prague, he screams at people, he says, I can, they're destroying Klai Yisrael by not teaching them Mishnayis. You see, and not just him, there are Rishonim that say, or Achronim, that say they decry this whole process is making clients willing to Amaratsim. You see? Why is it a doctor, he remembers his medicine at 35, a yeshiva guy at 35 doesn't know anything, doesn't remember anything. So how do you allow that? And I'll tell you why. <clears throat> how do they justify this? I'll tell you something very interesting. Because what the Bershom did is very interesting. Normally, you get reward if you know something. That's the usual. That's what happens in the non-Jewish world. You have to know your stuff. You don't get reward for learning, for the struggle, for the effort. But in Judaism, what the Bansham said is, you know, I'm going to give you reward not only if you know it, but if you learn it. Amelis. So people think, well, he's Amo. He's struggling to learn, and he gets reward, which is true. You see? So therefore, if he knows it, good. If not, okay, it's incidental. You see, there's no emphasis placed on retention. This is the, because they think that it's, if I, if I struggle to learn Gemara, if I learn Gemara, that's enough reward. That's a tremendous mistake. Not only because we see that the idea is Rishinantim Levanecha, mastery. Because by the time you're 30 years old, you basically forgot most of your Torah. And if you remember anything, it's basically little fragments floating around. This is not called mastery. This isn't true scholarship. You see? It's, it's astounding in many ways of what is going on and so on, you know. <clears throat> so let me tell you, there was a Godlby Yisrael. His name is Rabbi Yisrael Zev Gustman. He was an incredible person. He had a yeshiva uh, and so on, you know. When he was 21 years old, he was on the Besden of Rabbi Chaim Oizegudzinski. 21. And Rabbi Chaim Oizeg was a Godl Hador. And he was on the court, the Besden, you have any idea what this man knew at 21 years old? Questions, how did he do it? So he wrote a biography. I read it. And he says something, and of course it made sense. He said he went to a cheder. He was 10 years old. And the menial of the cheder, the principal of the cheder, would not allow any kid in that cheder to learn Gemara unless he knew all Shisha Sidbe Mishnah by heart. Amazing. That's what he required. You want to learn Gemara? Fine. But you must, you must know by heart the entire 4,192 Mishnahis. And he says he did. He said he was 10 years old and he memorized and he knew all Mishnahis. That's why he was able to finish the Babylonian Talmud at 16 and that the Shulchan Aruch. And that's why he was a Dayan on the Bezner of Chaim Oizer. It's astounding. You see, so that's one story which I, I'd love to share with you. Then there's another story which I'd love to share with you. Everybody heard of Rab Chaim Briska. I'm going to tell you a story that most people never heard of with Rab Chaim Briska. Okay, Rab Chaim Briska, of course, without going into the details, he innovated a different approach, conceptual thinking, and so on, uh, which is the emphasis and so on. Uh, but Rabbi Chaim Briska, uh, <clears throat> I mean, he was the classic archetype Litvish Godel. 
he was one of the gedolim of the door, and he innovated a whole method that is copied by every yeshiva, and so on. Anyway, most people don't realize that Reb Chaim had three sons, but he had a daughter, Sora Rasha, right? So what happens? So he once went to a city to speak, to speak or whatever. This is Reb Chaim Briska Soloveitchik, right? And he goes, right? And obviously people want to see him, get brachas, whatever. So there's a guy who shows up. He's about, I don't know, 18, 19, whatever, right? And the guy never learned Gemara inside. His father didn't believe in learning Gemara. It's interesting. What does that mean? His father made him mish- memorize the entire Mishnahis by heart. So at 12 years old, he knew all Mishnah. 4,192 Mishnahs by heart. He had obviously a very good head. A very good, he was an Elisha guy, as they say in, in English and so on, Hebrew, whatever, and so on. So Rab Chaim saw that this kid's very bright. He doesn't know Gemara. Whatever Gemara he knew, he knew from the Rav or from the Mephoshim, the commentaries on the Mishnahis. <coughs> you see? So Rab Chaim is speaking to this guy. His name was Rav Tzvi Hersh Glickson. I'll tell you his name, right? Remember, Rav Chaim had three sons and one daughter, Sora Rasha, Soloveitchik. Guess what? See, he looks at, and by the way, this guy was a Gera Chosid, Chasidish, right? And he says to this guy, I would like to take you as a Chosin. I want you to become my Adam. So when people heard about, and he did, he married up Chaim Briska's daughter, the, the Gera Chosid that never really learned inside until later, you know, when he became, uh, you know, whatever, 1920, that's when he started learning Gemara. So people were shocked. Rav Chaim Briska has taken a guy that wasn't incredibly fluent in Shas. So they asked Rav Chaim, like, what, what is this? And he said, I want to tell you something. This guy knows Torah, cold, from the Mishnais, at 12 years old, you know? So what I decided that he's a guy that I could teach Gemara myself to him, but he, because he's already been incredibly prepared to know everything. So, the fact that this kid, or whatever he was, teenager, <clears throat> knew all Mishnayas was the selling point of this kid, even though this guy was a Gera Chosid, and Rab Chaim is a Litvisha. I mean, whoever heard of something like that? <clears throat> you see. <clears throat> and then one more story. This story happened where Yaakov Kamenetsky, who was a previous, one of the G'dayla Ado previously, was somebody, uh, somebody had wanted to ask him, uh, a question in, in Mila, whatever. Uh, and uh, he went to Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, who was then the Rosh Hashiva of Torvadas, and he said to Rabbi Yaakov, he asked him the question, Rabbi Yaakov answered him, whatever. Uh, so then he, he said to Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, you know, I have a, a, a sister who's looking for a shidduch. Maybe you could recommend somebody, because basically you're the Rosh Hashiva of Torvadas, you know? It is to Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky. So Rabbi Yaakov thinks, and he says, you know, I had somebody in mind, but I just remembered he got engaged two weeks ago. You know, and he's one of the best guys. I don't recall if he's one of the best guys or the, the best guy in Torvadas, whatever. So, okay, look, the guy became engaged to somebody else, that's it. So this person, who, this person who's a male, asked him, with what was he the best guy? 
or one of the best guys? Interesting question. Obviously, you, you consider him, you know, either the best or one of the best, whatever. What did he do that gave you that impression? So you know what Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky said? He said, I'll tell you, when this guy was a kid, his father learned with him all six orders of the Mishnah. And this guy reviewed it over and over again. So he knows the entire Shisha Sidwe Mishnah clear. That's why he's either the best or one of the best guys. Take a look, this is Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky. That's what made him. Uh, these stories illustrate the power of learning Mishnah, but it's not just Mishnah. It's the power of having Yediyos, facts, of the Torah, you know, either before you start Gemara, or at least when you do learn Gemara, at least have the facts. Know that you need the preparation. You see, <clears throat> you need to have a clear, basic understanding of the entire oral law. And Mishnayis will do it for you. <clears throat> you see, this is what I'm trying to say. If a person knew all Mishnayis by heart, he would have a file cabinet where each card, each file is a Mishnah. And that would be where he could store any Gemara or, and so on into that file. And he would have the framework of remembering Shas just by knowing the Mishnais. You see, <clears throat> let me tell you something very interesting. You know, I can show you how to master the oral law in three years. You want to become an Odom Gobble, a great man, an enormous Torah scholar? Here's what you do start Mishnais. There's 4,192 Mishnayas. That's how many Mishnas there are. If you learn, right, four Mishnayas a day, you will finish in three years. What's three years? You're 40 years old, what do you remember anyway? Right? Like this, you'll know the whole Shas. Why? Because Mishnayas is 40% of Shas. People don't realize that. Because imagine if you know all the Mishnahis, so take that out, you know that. Then every place it says in the Gemara, and we learn the Mishnah, well, you know that too. And guess what? Every Brisa, which is basically a Tosefta, is 80% Mishnah, 20% Chiddush. Novel idea. So you know most of the Brises or the Toseftas. You have an idea, you would know over 100,000 halachas of the entire oral law. In three, year, in three years, isn't it worth it? you imagine that? What's three years? Now, if you want to learn Gemara, fine. Okay, but you must have a seder in what's called Torah knowledge. Torah Shabbat Peh. This is the mistake, really, that everybody's making. Now, just to say one more idea, which is very important, but that's basically the yeshivas. So the Rebbe wants to make sure that they learn and they're not culpable. What did it? I'll tell you. Because what the Bansham did, and it, it has to be God-driven, you know. What does a 12-year-old kid dream of in yeshiva, right? That he's going to become a lamdan. A lamdan. A lamdan means some guy who's really phenomenal in analysis. 
So everybody's, so you can become phenomenal in analysis, but only after mastering a certain database. You don't become an expert London if you know nothing, no ideas, no facts. So what's happening is everybody wants to be alumni at 12 years old. You can't do that. Oh, uh, you see? You want to be alumni, so you'll wait till 20, 23, whatever. Because you'll have a database of all the facts. So the desire and the dream of being alumni, and not a Talmud Chochum, but alumni, I feel, personally, is what destroys people. Because they're so busy trying to be advanced that they never even know the basics. You know, I once asked, what's the difference between Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky and the Talmud Chochem? And the answer is, obviously Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky is a Talmud Chochem. So what's the difference? And the answer is, Rabbi Chaim knows that Talmud Chochem learns. This is the problem. Education is not about learning only. It's about knowing, and according to the it's about mastery. That's what God wants. He doesn't want a guy only to learn. He'll, that's great. He has a malus and so on. But there's a sequence to education. There's a sequence to Hatzlocha. And Hatzlocha doesn't come to a 10-year-old when he's trying to be a lamdan at 10 years old and learning a Gemara, a Sugya, which is incredibly difficult and advanced and he has absolutely no previous knowledge of any of the concepts of the Sugya. And even if the Rebbe explains it, it's not the same as if he would see the scope of the entire Masechta. Then he'd know every idea in the Masechta. You see, <clears throat> but wait a minute. The Roshim did not have enough. Because what about all the Balabatim? You know? But remember, he wants to keep learning. But the key is not just to keep learning. The key is that they can't know. You see? So they won't be culpable. So what did the Bansham do? And this is incredible. Uh, he put an idea in the mind of somebody. Rabmeir Shapiro. He put an idea in the mind of Rabmeir Shapiro to create a concept called Dafyoimi. Now, I'm not here, I'm not here to denigrate Dafyoimi, but you have to understand and be honest, what is the objective of Dafyoimi? Dafyoimi is a learning project. It's not a knowing project. We all know that. You know? So, I mean, many times I ask the guy, well, what did you learn? Well, you don't remember anything, which is true. So guys, well, maybe a couple of times I do the daf, you know, the shas, every seven and a half years. I'll, this is not the way education proceeds, you see. Learning has to be, education is about learning and knowing. And in the Torah world, it's even mastery. It's not about learning and then just going on and forgetting. This is not education. Uh, you see, that's the mistake. So what the Bonjam did is he put an idea in the mind of Ramir Shapiro, Right? That in many ways, let me tell you what Ramir Shapiro's intent was. That if one Jew meets another Jew at a train station, right? Since they learned the same daf, they'll have what to talk about. Uh, but did he envision that this should be the main way that people should acquire Torah knowledge? You can't acquire Torah knowledge this way when you learn a blot a day. Yeah, maybe when you're the, the Bagat Shia. 
but everybody else doesn't remember anything, uh, you see. In fact, basically, a guy goes to Daf Yomi and learns the whole Shas, it's the only way a guy can say, I forgot the whole Shas, because that's really what happens. So, I'm, I'm, I, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm not in any way putting it down, but it has to be understood what its proper context is. It's a way of either reviewing, you know, or as long as you know, I'm only learning and so on. Uh, but the question is, wait a minute, do you realize if you learn Mishnahis first, 4,192 Mishnahis, take you three years, that's all. What happens if you did that first and you memorized the Mishnahis? Do you know that you would recall most of Shas just from the Mishnahis? Because that's how much Mishnahis there is. And not only that, you would know Taharis, purities, right? You would know Kochim, you would know Zeroim, that basically they don't have Kamara. Kochim has a little bit and so on, you know? Uh, which of course most people don't know and so on, you know? So it comes out. I want to ask you something. You think Ramesh Shapiro is the first one who, who got this idea of Adaf Yomi? Of course not. Why didn't Chazal, I mean, Chazal are very bright people, why didn't they say years ago, well, everybody learned the same blot? You know why? Because they didn't want to say it. Because that's not learning. You have to know. That's why they never offered this. You think because they never thought about it? Of course they did. You know? I mean, Chazal have been learning for 4,000 years. You think he's the first one that came up with this idea? And so on, of course not. And the answer is, because that's not what God wants. It has its place. There's no question about that. Now, what is important to know, and I want to finish off with this, is I think in a certain sense, part of the Jewish world is getting it. For instance, there's an organization called Dirshu. Now, Dirshu realizes what the problem was, that you don't remember anything. So it's nice to have learned through Shas, but if you don't remember anything, so what in the world is going on? Uh, so therefore, they came up with an amazing program of accountability, which is great, and incentives, where you can actually test yourself and see what you remember. So that does help. That is, which is very interesting, that seems to be where God is ending the Xera of Let's hope that's true, that God wants to end that, and He wants the, the Jews to have tremendous amount of Torah scholarship. Uh, but there's no question that there's an enormous proliferation of Torah text, art scroll, for instance, how many texts they've translated, you know? So they are exposing the Torah enormously to so many different people, which is Gvaldig, which is great. So I believe that means that the Xero of Amaratsis, that's really what it is, is ending, or seems to be ending, because the Bershom is seems to be inspiring movements that try to end the fact that nobody remembers anything. <clears throat> but don't fool yourself. <clears throat> you want to do something, fine. But at least recognize, right, what its position really should be. You see? And don't fool yourself. If you want to master the oral law, then you first should do Mishnais. And if you want to learn Gemara, fine. Then do it part-time or whatever. But why do you have to spend the whole day on Gemara? Why not have a two or three hour Seder, you see, on Mishnais? And I don't mean Bikiyas. Because it's the same problem. You're learning Shaklavataya. 
you see, what do yeshivas do? Well, they want to go faster. What faster? Gemara is still 90% Shaklavataya. You still don't really remember, you see? And after a year, you forget. But if you learn Mishnahis and you remember all the data of 100,000 uh, pieces of halach and so on, it's an unbelievable uh, remedy for a Jew not remembering Teresh because that will always be your file cabinet where you store everything. <clears throat> In any case, what I've tried to explain is what I see, you see, and the logic of it, that we realize <clears throat> that a great deal of what the Mershom has been doing for the last 300 years is to get the Jewish people into Ilam Habo. Very important idea. And therefore he's got to reduce, in Hebrew it's called the Hamtoka Sadinam. He has to reduce the claim or the charge of the Sultan. And he does that so far, I've mentioned three ways. One, right, is he has to uh, increase the amount of evil, you see. So that takes away, the, in many ways, a lot of the free will because there's no models to look at. Then he has to diminish the presence of the Jew. So therefore the Shekhinah is no longer really here. And therefore evil can proliferate. And then the third thing is, well, I want them to learn. And the Baruch has done that. He's got a tremendous amount of learning going on. But in order to pr provide uh, the concept of culpability, right, the Baruch had to make sure they learn, but they don't really know. You see, uh, and like I say, there are movements that are trying to remedy that, which is great, you see. But you have to recognize what really should be, a yeshiva should teach language. They have to master the language. And then they won't be handicapped in learning. They need to learn Tanakh, which they do. Then they need to learn Mishnayis, which is the database. That's the Yediyah Satira. And then, of course, you have to learn Gemara, but in its proper sequence. And that's what the Mishnayis is. That's the Chazal tell us that, you, you see. And then besides that, of course, you have to learn Halacha, which is the application, right? And you have to learn Hashkofa, because we live in a generation of terrible foreign ideologies. And if we are not grounded, right, in the basics of the Hashkofa, of Torah and Judaism, you will get lost. Then you are risking being exposed to so many different ideas of apicosis, you know, uh, and so on, you know, minus and so on. You don't want that. Uh, so to do all this would give you a tremendous proper education. And not only that, if you do this, like I showed you, you can become a massive Talmud Chacham in three years. What's three years? It, it's a joke. But you really have to attend and you have to know how to do it, you know. <clears throat> so there is a way to do it. How do you memorize? There's a whole memory system, you see. <clears throat> and uh, not only a memory system, but how do you learn a Mishnah? What do you look for in the Mishnah that you want to remember? And so on. There's a lot of ideas that come with this. I would love to, maybe in the future, give some lectures about that, how to do it and so on, you know. <clears throat> but this is certainly an intro into one of, uh, I feel, one of the major problems in education in the last 50, 60 years, certainly after the, after the war and so on and so forth. And to restore, really, that's the goal, to restore total greatness to the Jewish people. Thank you.